I think you're going to enjoy the talk today. I think it's going to be helpful to you. If you were here last week, then you know that we spent some time talking about Jesus' message regarding the gospel or what he says is his good news. As part of that same talk, we spent considerable moments looking at the Bible's idea concerning the kingdom of God. And there are these interchangeable phrases that are used in the Bible. Sometimes it's just called the kingdom. Sometimes it's the kingdom of God. Sometimes it is called the kingdom of heaven. And not only did Jesus announce this kingdom that was come, in fact, he said, it has come. It is within you even now. Not only did Jesus proclaim this, also we know that John the Baptist did. And even Jesus commissions his 12 disciples, and he sends them out to broadcast this message concerning the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. Many times it would say that in the scriptures. The kingdom of God is here. And oftentimes it would be followed up with another phrase, so repent. Repent. The kingdom of God is among you, so repent. And it's this whole idea of joining, coming into the kingdom of God. Now, keeping the idea of the kingdom of God in mind, I want us to go ahead and I want to jump right in to three verses that are found in Matthew chapter 13. And you maybe have looked at these verses before, but you've never really been able to think about them as deeply as you're going to be able to do so today. And I think this is a launching point will make a lot of sense to us. Let's start with the first one. Uh, again, look at this first verse. This is uh, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. And Jesus is given a parable. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven, we're back to that phrase now, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Look at that. And then, you'll want to keep this phrase in mind. We'll come back to it as well. And then, in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Now, Jesus is going to keep the main point of this parable alive, but he's going to alter it slightly in the next two verses. Look at these two verses. So, Jesus again reiterating the same tone. He said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, pause there for just a moment. When I was working hard on this talk to be able to bring to you today, I, I thought, well, you know, why is this guy, initially when I read it through the uh, first couple of times, why is this guy so fired up about one pearl? You would think that he would want to find myriads of pearls, and then that would really fire him up. And then I just went back and read and reread, and then it made more sense when it says, when he found one of great value. This is like one that is like really, really special special, really significant. So what did this guy do? He went away and he sold everything he had and bought it. Now, when you see those three verses, maybe you're wondering, what, is it, what exactly is Jesus doing in this story? What is he doing? Is he encouraging people to be sneaky and scheming? Is that what he's doing? I mean, we read it that this, this guy goes out and he finds this treasure or the other guy finds this pearl of great value. And what did they do? Hit it and then came back later and bought the field so that they could have it. Now, is this what Jesus is encouraging people to do, to be scheming and sneaky? And of course, we know that that is not accurate. And of course, we know that human nature is such, if you have kids or grandkids, you know that you don't even have to teach them to be sneaky. They're just all that on their own. How many, of you, how many of you have kids? Maybe even if they're grown, you've, you've got kids. How many of you, your kids had the spiritual gift of sneakiness? My boys did. Now, not Audrey. Audrey is in the 930 service. Audrey didn't have that. 
Audrey was our angel of the three. It, it was like God was saying, because you put up with those two boys, you're going to be blessed with Audrey. That's what it was like. The boys were exceedingly sneaky. In fact, I, I sometimes just made me a little bit anxious to be able to leave the house and just the two of them be there and wondering, was it still going to be standing when, it, uh, you know, when we return home? I can remember coming home and, and just walking through the house and not finding, uh, you know, not expecting to find anything out of the ordinary. And I can remember so many different occasions, like one occasion, I uh, went to walk into my room and as I got ready to open the, the door, I noticed there was a big gaping hole through the entire door. And I'm like, how did that happen? How was there this big hole in our bedroom door that was not there previously? And so I started t- quizzing, you know, the, the little convicts and asking them, what, what happened here? And they tell this outlandish story, well, he did this to me and I grabbed the broom and I'm chasing him and he slammed the door and the broomstick went all the way through. And I'm like, how do you guys even imagine this? I get home one time and, and Drew's like, you're not going to believe. And they were small. You're not going to believe what Brent did to me while, while y'all were gone. Like, what did he do? Well, we had a two-story house at the time. Uh, this is up in northeast Florida. He said he rolled me up in a big quilt and he taped the ends and he pushed me from the second floor down to the first floor. I'm like, what are you guys? I mean, what are you thinking? They have this spiritual gift of sneakiness. Well, True found uh, little ways to get back to his older, bigger brother over time. I can remember one year, and I don't remember which grandparent, but they had gotten both of them uh, like this huge canister of gumballs. And, and Brent, I mean, he just dove right in. I mean, he was, not, he was not thinking save for the future. He was thinking devouring them as fast as he could. And so he went through that canister so fast. Once he finished his canister, Drew started noticing when he'd go to get another gumball that it just seemed that there were more missing than he remembered. And this happened again and again, and then suddenly he made the deduction, Brent has finished his, and now he is eating my gumballs. And it irritated him. And he conceived this thought that, looking back, probably was from God, I guess. And so I can remember uh, the day... When he went back to that canister that is now just a few gumballs, just, just a handful, and he opens it up, and he knew that his brother had been back in it, and he said to Brent, Brent, have you been getting my gumballs? And Brent, because he knows they're about empty, he said, yes, I have. I, I've enjoyed them. I've eaten so many of your gumballs. And Drew said, good, because when I figured out you were doing it, I took them out one at a time, and I just licked them all over, and I put them all right back in the canister. The spiritual gift of sneakiness. Is this what Jesus is saying? Absolutely not. Instead, Jesus is assessing the great value of the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And usually when Jesus shares a parable, he is desiring to drive home one point, and the one point here, and don't miss this, maybe you've never thought about it, maybe you've never seen this when you've read these three verses, what the main point is here is Jesus is saying there's this guy that he found something of such measureless value that he will not stop at anything until he possesses it. He will not let this treasure slip through his hand. He found it. He hid it. He sold everything that he could get his hands on, brings the money to buy the field to be able to acquire the treasure. And Jesus is saying, if you really understand what the kingdom of God is like, you will do everything within your power to possess it. You'll want to be, if you really understand the kingdom, you'll do everything that you can to be a part of it. You will not stop. You will not sleep. You will not rest when you really understand the kingdom. 
It just causes me to wish that people understood the kingdom of God and following Jesus and what that's all like. Because, you know what, friends? I believe this to the core of my soul, that if anybody really fundamentally understands the beauty and the wonder and the splendor of the kingdom of God, they'd want to be a part of it. If people really understood what it was like to follow Jesus, to calculate the cost, we're going to talk about that and to really think it through what it means to follow Jesus. If anybody understood that that leads to life that is truly life, they'd do whatever it takes, they would not rest until they follow Jesus. So this morning, as we continue our series, A Jesus Kind of Life, I want us to spend some time talking about what does it really mean to follow Jesus? Practically speaking, what does a calculated decision like that really look like? And it's important that we, as we approach this talk, to just keep in mind something that you saw in a verse that I pointed out to you just moments ago. It is this phrase, with joy. You see, when you understand the kingdom of God and you step into it, you're going to be met with great joy. If you ever make the determination that you're going to follow Jesus, and, and I'm not talking about partially in, partially out, when you really say, I'm going to follow Jesus with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, you're going to be met with great joy. You see, following Jesus and belonging to the kingdom is not an obligation. It is not drudgery. People make it that way sometimes. It's not an annoy, annoyance. Done correctly, it will be sheer joy. And I, that's why I, I think so oftentimes that, you know, when somebody hears about the kingdom and they hear about following Jesus and it just seems obligatory to them and just drudgery to them, they've not heard an accurate description of what the kingdom of God is like or what following Jesus really entails. So I want to wade into this by looking at three verses from Mark chapter 8. You're probably more familiar with these three verses than you were the uh, first three verses we looked at. So let's look at these verses together. The guys are going to put them up on the screen. All right? So Jesus is talking about this, following him. Then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and this is what Jesus said. If anybody would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Look at this language. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If you really want to look out for you, you want to protect your life, you want your life to be all about you, and that's how you're going to spend your life selfishly, you're going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will actually save it. And then here's a profound statement. What good is it for a person to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit their soul? And Jesus here wants to, to realize that, and this has got to be so crystal clear to us, friends, that we do not just somehow ease into becoming a disciple. We do not just drift in becoming his student. To be a follower of Jesus means that you have to deliberate. You have to think it through. You've got to count the cost. You've got to make a decision. And can I just say it this way? If you do not make a decision, indecision is actually a decision. Indecision is actually a decision. If you say, well, you know what? I, I hear, you know, Jesus talking about the kingdom, and we're talking about it in this series, and you're going to understand it more when we get to the end. If a person says, well, well you know, uh, this whole matter of belonging to the kingdom of God and the family of God, being grafted into God, you know, belonging to Jesus in a personal relationship, I, uh, I, I don't want to do anything about that right now. I, I want to just shift that into passivity and neutrality, and I don't want to do, your indecision actually becomes a decision. You're saying, I don't want to become a part of the kingdom of God or I will not follow Jesus. Indecision is actually a decision. And you have to really think it through. 
you've got to really count the cost. You really have to deliberate your decision. Will you follow him? Will you take up your cross? Or will you not? David uh, Platt has written a fantastic book, and in it he makes the statement, the cost of picking up a cross and following Jesus is steep. It costs you everything you have, but in the end, the reward is sweet. You gain more than you ever had. Now, in Jesus' day, to follow him meant something quite different than it does in our day. And uh, I've got this in my head. I'm, I'm going to try to communicate it. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes getting my mind and my mouth all connected together so I say accurately what I'm thinking, that sometimes is a challenge. Any of you ever have that experience? So I'm going to try to communicate to you what is in my head. In Jesus' day, to follow him meant that you literally followed him. You read in the Gospels how that Jesus would call somebody to follow him, and what would they do? They would drop their nets. They would walk away from their family business, all to literally follow Jesus wherever Jesus was going. Sometimes Jesus spoke to people like Levi or Matthew who had a tax collector's booth and there because of it uh, enjoyed this, uh, this very affluent life because he had been in the process of ripping people off. And Jesus caused him to follow him, to become a Jesus follower. And he walks away from his lucrative business. Do you remember in the Gospels where there's this demoniac who has spent his days in the tomb and it said that he would be chained because he was so out of control. He was possessed by a legion of, of devils and, and he, he encounters Jesus and Jesus speaks and, and delivers him from all of these demons that had possessed his life. And now it says that he's, now people came from the town and they knew this guy. They knew his reputation his, and his madness and his, his possession. And they see this guy clothed, and it said, the Bible says, seated there in his right mind. And he's been delivered. He's a free man. And out of gratitude and love and devotion for the man that has set him free, he says to Jesus, I want to follow you. And there may be other occasions in the Bible where this happens. I can't recall any, but Jesus says, no, I don't want you to follow me. And Jesus is not being harsh. He's not being unkind. In fact, Jesus has a different plan and it made sense to Jesus why a guy like this would want to follow him after what Jesus had done for him. But this is what Jesus said. I want you to stay here. In fact, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go, and I want you to tell people that you know what good things God has done for you. So to literally follow Jesus was that you just said, hey, I'm going to become a student. And Jesus was the leading rabbi. There was no other rabbi like Jesus. And to become his student, to become his disciple, his pupil, meant that you followed Jesus literally wherever he went. Now, of course, in our day, we cannot do that. Jesus is here through the activity of the Holy Spirit that is everywhere present, but Jesus is not physically walking this earth. After his death and resurrection, he ascended, the Bible tells us, back to the Father in heaven. But you know what Jesus has left behind? Jesus is left behind his body because the church is the body of Christ. And if you and I are going to grow and we're going to learn what it's like to live in the kingdom, and if we're going to learn what it's like to follow Jesus, it means that we just get closer and closer to that which matters most to Jesus, and that is his body, his bride. So what does it mean to follow Jesus today? And the reality is this. Jesus knew that to follow him in his day meant that you literally followed him but to live our lives today, it is to live as if Jesus were in our place. To live with a Jesus kind of love. 
to live the way, loving the way that Jesus loved, to live with a Jesus kind of peace. The, the Bible is not coincidental that Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace and that we go about everywhere we can spreading peace and we live with a Jesus kind of patience. Anybody need a little help in that regard or already are you a very patient person? but to live our lives with a Jesus kind of patience and a Jesus kind of kindness. In fact, anytime I ever see a rude Christian, I just say to myself, that's, that's an oxymoron. That's like saying jumbo shrimp. The two don't even go together. A rude Christian, it doesn't even go together. To live a Jesus kind of life is to be a kind person. It is to be filled with his goodness. And have we sincerely purposed that this is Exactly the kind of life that we're going to live for the rest of our life. A Jesus kind of loving, peaceful, patient, kind, good kind of life. You see, the problem that Jesus knew most of his listeners would face is the problem that you and I often face. It is not that they would abandon their faith. Jesus was not worried that they would abandon their faith. What Jesus was concerned about is that they would comfortably settle for just some mediocre version of it that they would not want to stand outside of the kingdom of God, but that they would not want to fully enter into it and live that kind of Jesus kind of life. If I were to walk around this room and privately and individually ask you, do you want to be in the kingdom of God? Every one of you with a resounding yes, would, uh, with a resounding response would say, yes, I do. I want to belong to the kingdom of God. If I were to walk around and say, hey, are you willing to follow Jesus, whether you meant it or not, if for no other reason than just to uh, tell me what you thought I wanted to hear, you'd say, yes. I want to follow Jesus. But a lot of people settle for a mediocre version of a Jesus kind of life. Yeah, I don't want to be outside of the kingdom, but I don't want to fully enter into it. And of, co of course, that is the most miserable way to live, where we're in, but we're out. We're back and we're forth. We're forth and we're back. People say, yeah, I, I want to be in the kingdom of God, but I don't want to be all the way in. I don't want it to really change my life and really what I, uh, of course I need fire insurance. I want to have a ticket punch for heaven, but I don't want to really live my life fully the way that Jesus wants me to live my life. I just want to partially do so. I do good things. I, I go to church occasionally. I, I read my Bible sporadically. I give sparingly. I pray when there's an emergency but I never really follow Jesus or choose to live my life in a Jesus kind of way. And so what I want to do in the balance of our time, I want to just mention, and it will not take me long, three things that will often stand in the way. Three things, I'll give them to you. I want you to be sure you get them down. Three things that will stand in the way of a person taking up their cross and following Jesus into this life that Jesus said is life that is truly life. So let me give you three real quickly before we're done. Be sure you get them. Three things have got to be removed if we're going to really be engaged in the kingdom. Uh, three things that have got to be pushed aside and cut off if you and I are really going to follow Jesus and live that Jesus kind of life. So let me give them to you. Number one, here it is. If we're going to sincerely follow Jesus, then we're going to have to get rid of all of our excuses. All of our excuses. How many of you know that we can be professional excuse givers? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done something like this? You show up late for work, and you're late for work, truth be told, because you left your house late, later than you should have. 
But then when you show up late, it was not because you left your house late. It was because the traffic. Now, the traffic may have been the same that it's been for the last 542 days, but you left uh, the house late and you got to work late, but it's hard to say I left late, so it was the traffic. That's an excuse. Now, I want you to see some excuses that people gave, and the guys are going to put this up on the screen. Check these out and see if you understand sort of the lameness uh, of the majority. I'd say at least the majority of the excuses. This is Luke 14. When one of those seated at the table with Jesus heard what Jesus said, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat of the feast in the kingdom of God. Here we are again, the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. We're ready for the party. Come on. I want you to read this next sentence with me. Everybody, everybody, 100%, I want you to read what Jesus then said. Let's read it together. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Sorry, can't be there. Please excuse me. The second one said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Sorry, can't make it. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. That seems a, a lot less lame. He's like, I just got married. I'd be there, but my wife told me I couldn't come. No, that's not what the Bible said. That's, I just made that up. I don't know why I even did that. That was not God. But they all alike begin to make excuses. Excuse number one, I've just bought a field. I've just bought a field. I can't come. Really? Really? That's the reason you can't come? Now, I've, I've not really, uh, you know, uh, been in, engaged in real estate except for two homes that I've owned. I can think of one time that I really, really wanted to invest in some real estate, and I didn't because I didn't have the resources to do so uh, at the time. And then I watched the escalation of the value of that real estate. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Why didn't I do whatever it took to purchase that? Because it had gone up like 400%. But even though I'm a novice in regards to real estate, a lot of you are really, really good at it in purchasing it or selling it, investing in it. This is what made sense to me. It seems like if you're going to invest in real estate, you would want to check it out first. You wouldn't want to just buy any old place without being familiar with it. And yet this guy's saying, I'd like to come, but I just bought a field. I need to go check out something that I bought. That sounds not too believable for me. Excuse number two, I've just bought five yoke of Watson. Really? This seems insincere to me as well. You mean... It would be like you and I saying, well, hey, I want to buy a car. I need a car, and I'm just going to buy, and I'm not even going to look. Whatever car shows up in my driveway, I'm going to be content and happy with that. I don't care what it is. My daughter-in-law's father is a farmer. He farms a lot of acreage in Illinois. He comes to Florida every year. Why does he come? He comes to personally look at the farming equipment that he wants to buy. And I know that there's much more technology, savvier ways to do it. But I think, honestly, this guy's just making an excuse. Excuse number three, I just got married. And you know what? I think on this guy, we can cut him some slack. He's been waiting for his honeymoon a long, long time. And that's all I'm going to say about that because I need to move on. But we all give excuses. We always have excuses. 
I, I read some time ago, and I just uh, brought a few with me. I'll only read three or four, but these are actual excuses that, that parents wrote in because of why their kids missed school. These are actual. These are not fabricated. I, I'll read three or four. All right, here's the first one. Dear school, this is how the, the excuse went. Dear school, please excuse E-K-S-C-U-S-E. Please excuse John for being absent on January 28th, 29th, 30th, 31st, 32nd, and 33rd. He missed all those days in January. I don't think this mom quite finished the note. I think she left some things out. Please excuse Jimmy for being, just for being. It was his father's fault. It's his fault. Is, it's his dad's fault he's being. I really like this one. I can't quite make the connection. Maybe it is or it is not. Please excuse Tommy for being absent yesterday. He had diarrhea and his boots leak. I don't even want to know. I don't even want to know. Mary Ann was absent December the 11th through the 16th because she had a fever, sore throat, headache, and upset stomach. Her sister was also sick, true known, fever and sore throat. Her brother had a low-grade fever and ached all over. I wasn't feeling the best either, the mom said, sore throat and fever. There must be something going around. Even their father got hot last night. I'm going to leave that one alone too. Even dad got, you know, even my husband got hot, so I know something's not right around here. But isn't it true that we can always find an excuse to get out of what we do not want to do, but we can always find the time or the energy or the money to do exactly what we want to do. Listen, friends, if I don't want to do something, it is easy for me to find an excuse as to why I'm not going to do it. But when I really, really, really want to do something, how many of you know we will find the time, we will find the energy, we will find the money to make it happen. And Jesus said, you're not going to be able to be in the kingdom if you're always coming up with excuses as to why you can't. You're not going to be able to follow me fully if you've always got an excuse as to why you cannot follow me. And to really follow Jesus, you know what it means? We've got to get rid of all of our excuses. Secondly, here's the second thing that we will need to remove in order to follow Jesus. What the Bible refers to as double-mindedness. Now, these verses are not on the screen And I've got to hurry through these last two. But in James chapter 1, this great church leader says in verses 6 through 8, he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Now, you have to clearly understand, and I'll just touch on this briefly because I don't want you to misunderstand it. What James is speaking to Right here, when he talks about one who doubts, he is not alluding to a person who has intellectual uncertainties, like they haven't quite, they're searching, but they haven't quite figured, that's not what he's talking, he's not talking about intellectual uncertainty, what he's actually talking about here is divided loyalties, and Jesus actually shows us a much clearer picture of this in a passage that a lot of you, and this is one of the passages in the Bible that I'll never forget because of the names that are involved. The names that are involved in this situation that Jesus is a part of are the names of Martha and Mary. And I'll always remember them because my grandmother who passed away uh, last month, her name was Martha, and, and my mom who passed away a year and a month ago, her name was Mary. And so they have the same names, but in this incident that Jesus is a part of, same names as my mom and grandma, but their temperaments and personalities are just the opposite of what happens in the Bible. And I'll show you what I mean. Look at this up on the screen. Luke 10, 
Jesus has come as a guest to their home. Uh, remember, some of you will, that they're sisters of one of Jesus' dear friends, Lazarus. And so Jesus pays a visit to their home. They're, uh, they're animated about it. They're trying to get things prepared. They want everything to be right. And so Martha is scurrying about, and Jesus just does like a timeout. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. You're just all over the place. You're just scattered. You're upset. Man, you're running around here like crazy, and I appreciate it. Martha, I really do. Now, this, in my family, that was not Martha. Martha is my grandmother, and that's not Martha. That is Mary. That is my mom. My mom, uh, when I see these words, worried, upset, you know, that if, if we had guests in our home, that's how. My mom, how many of you have heard this expression, clean freak? My mother took that to a category like you can't even imagine. My aunts will validate this story. I'm not making it up. When my sister and I was young, my brother had not even come around. I can't even remember it. I was so young. Mom, when she took us to a playground and we're running around playing like all the other kids, this is my mom. This is my mom. She sat there watching us, but this is what my mom did that was different from the other moms. She actually had with her a washcloth that she had, she had wet before she left the house. And every now and then she would say to my sister and me, come here, come here, come here. And we'd have to walk over and we'd have to hold our hands out. And she would wipe our hands and she'd wipe our face, get all the dirt off of it so that we could go back over and get it all dirty again. I don't understand. Worried. I gotta, everything's got to be right. And yet, go back to that, guys. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are so worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. You see, Martha, you're you're double-minded. You're glad that I'm here, but you're not even spending any time with me. You want to be here, but you don't want to be here. You want to sit in the living room with me, but you got so many things going on in the kitchen. You're, you're indecisive. You're back and forth. You're worried and upset and distracted. You're double-minded. You know what Jesus wants us to be? Singular focus. Only one thing, Jesus says. And Mary's chosen the better thing. See, Martha, you're running around. I appreciate it. I really do. But you're worried and you're distracted. Mary, on the other hand, has chosen one thing. She has single focus, and she's seated here at my feet. You know, indecisiveness is not a good thing. I'm not talking about prudence and wisdom. Bible even says there's wisdom in the uh, multitude of counsel. But how many of you know that sometimes you just got to be decisive? Indecisiveness sometimes. I I can remember this is uh, not at a church uh, that we're all a part of now. This is the church that I pastored before coming here. And there was a staff member, a pastor, that I wanted to interview. So I, I was traveling. I was flying to Atlanta. I forget why I was going to Atlanta. And this family lived in Atlanta, so I was going to interview them. I had the resume. I checked the references. I'd done my homework to the best of my ability. But having done all of that, I never really sat down face-to-face, eye-to-eye, and talked to them. So I did it at a restaurant in Atlanta, Georgia. And I've told this guy because he's my dear friend now, and uh, he's a great guy, fantastic guy, great church leader. But I, I told him later, I said, just being with you at the restaurant almost cost you a job that you did not have. And just started smiling. We were close. He said, what are you talking about? I said, I got really worried when you couldn't even make a decision about what you wanted to drink. And they brought out the menus, and the waitress walked around, and I'm not making this up, and 
waitress said, can I get your, your drink order? And so it's like, yeah, Diet Coke, water, you know, tea. And, just, and it came to him, last of all, and he's looking at the menu, and he's like, hmm, hmm. And I'm thinking, dude, this is just the beverage. I mean, there's no way I'm going to let her bring out a dessert menu after this. It's just, hmm. And I'm like in my mind, Come on. If, I'm like, if you can't make a decision about tea or Sprite or diet, what? I mean, we're in trouble here. It's difficult. It's more like impossible to follow Jesus if you're not certain what you want or serious about doing so. You're back and forth. You're forth and back. Do you want to be in the kingdom? Yeah. No, not really. Do you want Jesus to change your life? Of course I do. There's some stuff I don't want to give up. Do you want to follow Jesus? I, absolutely. Who wouldn't follow Jesus? But it may cost too much. And the Bible says this is double-mindedness. And we've got to get rid of it. One more and we're done. We will need to settle the score regarding competing authorities. You see, some of you have read these verses that I'm about to read. And to be totally transparent with you, I'm, I'm giving you the cleaned up translation. Now, let me just go ahead and jump into this real quickly before we're done, and I'll show you what I mean. Some of you have read this in other translations. You're like, what? What is Jesus talking about? I brought up the cleaned up translation. This is the contemporary English version. Large crowds were walking along with Jesus when he turned and he said to them, you cannot be my disciple unless you love me more than you love your father and mother, your wife and children, and your brothers and sisters. You cannot come with me unless you love me more than you love your own life. Now, this is the CV. Primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, I read from the NIV most of the time. In the NIV, and those of you who are familiar with that translation, and in many other translations, you know, I, I brought the softened one with me. In those translations, you know what Jesus said? Keep that up for just a moment, guys. In other translations, it reads like this. Jesus said, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your father, and you've got to hate your mother, and your wife, and your kids. You've got to hate your brothers and sisters. And some of you have said, well, I'm okay with that. I've been looking for biblical support for that for a long time. But uh, aside, you can't follow me in unless you hate these people. Have you ever read that? And you're like, what? What is Jesus talking about? I've got to hate my dad, my mom, my spouse, my kids, my brothers, my sisters, to follow him. It's not what Jesus is saying. Because everywhere else in the Bible, it says we've got to love everybody. Why would Jesus say you've got to love your enemies and not even love your own family? So that's not what Jesus is saying. But the cultural reality for what Jesus was saying, like in our day, we would say something like this. You know, I've got to determine what is the priority, what is number one in my life. So this is like number one, and this is like number two, and this is like number three priority in my life. And, and the cultural phenomenon in Jesus' day was like this. When you were trying to uh, uh, accentuate what it was competing Competing authorities in your life, you wouldn't say, that's number one, that's number two, number three. It would be contrasted in this way. You've got to love the one, and you've got to hate everything else. Is Jesus saying you've got to literally hate everybody else? Not at all. That's not what he meant. Jesus is just saying, I want to be the top priority of your life. I want following me to be the biggest thing you go after. And back in Matthew's gospel, guy walks into a field that doesn't belong to him 
And he finds this treasure. And he's like, I will not sleep until I find a way to have this treasure. And he goes and he hides it, Jesus said. And he goes and he sells everything that has his name on it, sells it so that he can collect enough financial resource to be able to go and buy the field because it has the treasure. Jesus said, I want my kingdom to become that kind of priority to you. I want following me to be that kind of priority for you. I don't want you to be half in and half out. I don't want you to say, today I'm following you and tomorrow I'm not. I don't want you to be hot nor cold. I I want you to be either hot nor cold because if you're lukewarm, if you're in and out, if you're back and forth, that ain't going to work. That will be a miserable kind of life. So Jesus said, I want to be the top priority. And as we close, I've got to ask you, is he? Is he really that in your life? Is he really the top priority of your life? And if you just say, no, Jeff, he's really not. Honestly speaking, he's not. Will you allow him to become the top priority in your life? Because when you realize how wonderful Jesus is and what it is to follow him, you will do whatever it takes. You'll remove every competing distraction to make sure that Jesus is the top priority of your life. You stand with me for a closing prayer. If you're here today and you say, you know, I am a Christian, but Jesus is not really the top priority in my life. I'm devoted to this and this and this, and Jesus just gets mixed in with a whole bag of other assorted things and competing distractions in my life. You've got to settle that. Indecision is a decision. You've got to either say, I'm going to, I'm just going to play it both ways, and that's not going to work. You'll be miserable doing that, or you're either, Jesus, I'm all in. doesn't mean you won't make mistakes. It doesn't mean that you won't fall from time to time. You just get right up and say, Jesus, I'm going after you, following you. Your kingdom is the pressing priority of my life. So, God, if there are Christians here today that are feeling that way, Jesus, they would say, I love you. Jesus, I worship you. They really mean that. Even where they're standing, they mean that. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I want to worship you. Jesus, I want to serve you. But they know, God, deep in their heart, you're not really the priority. You're not. You're one among many other things in their life that they have an eye on. I pray that they will determine today, that they'll think it through. They'll put the pencil to it. They'll count the cost. They'll deliberate and say, the smartest thing I can do in my life is really make Jesus the top priority of my life. God, for people that are here today that they're not yet Christians, and they're like, I don't even know what to believe. I don't even know the Bible is reliable. I don't even know if Jesus is the Son of God. or They know all those things, but they never receive you, that today, God, they'd take a step of faith. They'd say, Jesus, come into my life. Jesus, teach me to live. Help me enjoy to know life that is truly life. I'm tired of living the way I'm living. I'm tired of hopeless ambition. I'm tired of the monotony of my life. Jesus, I need you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Give me a brand new start. Teach me how to live. Show me what it means to really follow you. All, these, all this we ask in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Love you, everybody. Have an awesome week. Be sure you're back next Sunday.